Life of Jesus, a devotional study by Melva Perkis. Book 5, Chapter 3, The Bread of Life The excitement which followed the miracle of the bread in the desert did not quickly subside. The people had allowed Jesus to dismiss them, but they were loath to go. Many must have spent that wild night in the vicinity of Bethsaida Julius. Others had probably gone back only to return early the following morning. They had noticed that the disciples' boat had been the only one on the shore, and as Jesus had not recrossed the lake in it, and the wind had been blowing across all night from the Capernaum side, they had every reason to believe that he was still in the vicinity. But unable to find him, they at last decided that somehow he must have rejoined his disciples at Capernaum. They found a number of boats which had come from Tiberias, probably fishing boats, driven before the wind during the night and beached on that desert shore. And in them they made their way back to Capernaum and found Jesus with his disciples. Hence their surprised question, Rabbi! Whence camest thou? There is a footnote here which reads, This order of events is dictated by the comparison of Matthew 14 and John 6, where one record independently supplies the reason for the events related in the other. It is these little things, perhaps as much as the greater issues, which impress the seal of inspiration upon the record. Returning to the reading. Jesus looked at these people who had taken such pains to find him. His answer was a challenge to their clamourings of yesterday and their excitement of today. Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labour not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. They had tried to make him king because they wanted assurance of the bread which perishes. In a single gesture, Jesus swept into oblivion the mighty work of yesterday. He all but repudiated it because it had dazzled their eyes and diverted their attention from the true bread. The bread was nothing. Those who were temporarily sustained by it would be nothing in a brief span of time. Their only hope lay in labouring for that food which his father had sent him into the world to give. The food which is not subject to change and decay, but endures as a transforming power issuing finally into everlasting life. The difference was not one of degree. It was absolute. It had been so with Nicodemus. It had been so with the woman of Samaria. The Son of God had not come into the world to offer something better. He had come to offer life in direct contrast with death. There was no alternative. There could be no compromise. The people were impressed. They asked a natural question. 
What shall we do that we might work the works of God? This, Jesus answered, is the work of God, that ye believe in him whom he hath sent. The answer startled them and made them suspicious. They may have anticipated some code of precept or doctrine, but it was an answer which summarized the whole conception of faith and works. Effective works of love can only spring from belief in Christ. The Sermon on the Mount embodied a dedicated life which could only be built upon the rock of belief in its author as the one sent by God to give life unto the world. The attitude of the listeners changed. They wanted a sign. Not that they might believe in him, but that they might believe him, a different thing. Truly he had fed them yesterday in the desert, but Moses had given bread, literally out of the blue, to thousands in the wilderness for years, and he made no such claim. Jesus pointed out their mistake. It was not Moses, but God who had given bread to their fathers, and that bread was not the true bread. The true bread is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life to all the world. Visibly impressed, the people uttered the inarticulate cry of all mankind, Lord, evermore give us this bread. I am the bread of life. He that cometh unto me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Here was the sign they had asked for that they might see and believe. But though they had seen, they had not believed. They had come to him eagerly, but they had not truly come. They had eaten of the bread he gave, but not of the true bread that he was. The unbelief of the people was not an indication that God's purpose had failed. It is as the Father wills. The Father makes the choice. The Son has come to fulfil his Father's will. That will is that whosoever believes on the Son may have everlasting life and be raised at the last day. Bewildered murmurings broke out among the people. On what possible grounds could this man claim to have come from heaven? They knew all about him, his father and his mother. Was he not the son of Joseph? But Jesus reiterated the truth they had interrupted. He insisted that those who would come to him for living bread would only be those whom his father had drawn. The initiative was and would always be with the father. The children of Zion would be taught of God. The response would always be the influence of that divine teaching upon the heart, and the work of completion would always be with the Son. I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus then goes further in that revelation of himself as the bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is that bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. 
I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live for ever. And the bread which I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The true meaning of the bread broken on the opposite shore and the proximity of the Passover emerges here. The bread is not only the bread of life from heaven that man must eat to have everlasting life. It is also the living bread which the Son identifies as his flesh, which must be given for the life of the world. Once more the Jews broke into the discourse, striving between themselves, but Jesus repeated his words with a clarity which could not be misunderstood, although the meaning eluded them. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. The Son prophesied not only of his death, but of the everlasting life which would come forth from it. As the living Father had sent him, and he lived by the Father, so by partaking of his flesh and his blood, those who had been taught of God should live by him. The deep meaning that lay behind those words was not revealed until he spoke to the twelve alone in the upper room. It could not be understood in its fullness until he rose again from the dead. Most of those who then heard placed a crude construction upon these words and alienated themselves from Jesus. It was a great apostasy. There was unbelief among many of his disciples too. Does this offend you? There will be a greater strain upon their faith in days to come. It was not the actual eating of his flesh that would give life. It was the conscious assimilation of his life conveyed through belief in his words. Jesus knew from the beginning those who had been drawn by the Father and committed to his care. He knew too the terrible role to be played by one of the twelve. The crowds had left him, the disciples were divided, the apostles had a cell of wickedness in their midst. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. There is a compelling significance in the words, went back. They returned to the company of those who ate manna in the wilderness and were dead. There could be no compromise between life and death. A few hours ago Jesus had had to compel the multitudes to go away from him. No compulsion was necessary now. Puzzled and antagonized, they left him. It was a moment of crisis for the twelve also. The physical storm on the waters the previous night was followed by a spiritual upheaval as violent and dangerous. Their master constrained them to take this voyage of faith as certainly as he had compelled them into the boat. As the crowds left him, the moment of decision came. 
Had they understood their master's words, the general desertion would have troubled them not at all. But the night was dark, and their lord seemed far away. He turned to them now. Can we not discern an understanding smile? Will ye also go away? No. The crisis was past. Little as they understood the deep things he had said, they believed on him with all their hearts. Peter again became their spokesman. Once more his voice carried across the dark waters of doubt which had for a while separated them from their Lord. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. There was one abstention from that expression of confidence. One of the twelve should have gone back with the unbelievers. He did something far worse. He stayed in their midst, a false accuser in disciples' guise. And Jesus knew. Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. For he it was who should betray him, being one of the twelve. Book 5, Chapter 4, Crumbs from the Master's Table It may have been news of the attempt to make Jesus king, carried by Passover pilgrims to Jerusalem, which was responsible for a further deputation of scribes and Pharisees to Galilee. It is obvious that they had come with the intention of joining issue with Jesus immediately. The feeling of the multitudes had given them the clue to their approach. It would have been impossible for all the people to have observed the important rite of washing the hands before eating. Here there is a footnote which reads, The traditions of the elders demanded careful obedience to this ordinance, giving instructions concerning the manner in which it was to be done. The hands were to be held upwards after washing, so that the whole hand might be covered but to the wrist, and the water contaminated by the washing not run down the fingers again and pollute them. Failure to observe this ritual resulted in the defilement of any food that was touched. One rabbi who failed to enforce it was actually buried in excommunication. See Edashim, Life and Times of Jesus, Volume 2, page 10. To continue the reading. The scribes had little difficulty in discovering the disciples at fault in this. They approached Jesus. Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? They could not have been prepared for the withering attack that met them. The battle was joined. No quarter would be asked or given until the end. 
Jesus, neither justifying nor apologizing for his disciples, exposed the fatal gulf between the Lord of God and their tradition. We can hardly appreciate the full significance of the crude blasphemy which the rabbinic writings contained and which were included in a tradition made more binding than Scripture itself. For the first time he flung at them the charge of hypocrisy. Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honoureth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. They must have been startled by this sudden attack, with its accusation made more devastating by his holy wrath. But he had not finished with them yet. The crowd stood a little way off, watching in amazement this wandering rabbi from Nazareth, who had become a symbol of fiery judgment. He returned to the attack, dealing a death blow to their traditions, exposing them as self-condemned to all who had ears to hear. Not only did they set aside the Lord of God, they positively rejected it in order to replace it with commandments ingeniously compiled to serve their selfish ends. He quoted the case of Corban, by which a man might be released from God's command to honour his father and mother by dedicating his wealth to the altar, but the sin was more terrible than that. It freed him by deceit from obedience to God. His gift was a pretense. He was under no obligation, in spite of his promise, Corban, to lose his money, and, said Jesus, many such like things do ye. Turning to the wandering multitude, he commanded them to come near, and hear his answers to the charge. He spoke with great earnestness, compelling their attention. Hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand, he said. And a moment later, If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. He was about to tell them something of the greatest importance which showed the striking contrast between his teaching and that of the scribes. They had found fault because his disciples had eaten with unwashed hands, thereby defiling the food they ate. That, he maintained, was impossible. Defilement does not go into a man from without, it comes from within. Here lay the essential difference between the commandments of men and the law of God. The scribes supported the teaching that said that, because the hands were not washed, the bread was polluted and the eater defiled. Jesus said it was what was in the heart of man, which issued out of him in evil thoughts, murders, pride and wickedness, which defiled him. He showed that the scribes were fundamentally wrong because by a tradition of externalism they sought by outward observances to influence the inner man. That could never be. The Lord of God presented by Christ addressed itself to the inward man, transforming the heart and therefore the qualities which issued from the heart the character and conduct. 
the whole of the teaching of Christ, crystallised in the Sermon on the Mount, was dedicated to this task. The disciples on reaching the house asked him for a clearer understanding of this. He gave them the appalling catalogue of depravity hidden in the natural heart. He was also giving them hour by hour and day by day the perfect example of the qualities which shone forth from a heart which was entirely dedicated to God. The disciples do not appear to have had any desire to renew their attack, nor were they now to have a further opportunity. It was still the obvious desire of Jesus to move away from the crowds and find a secluded place where, free from interruption, he could continue to instruct his disciples and unfold to them a picture of the days that lay ahead. They must not be irretrievably lost when they see the nature of the crown that is destined for his head. They must remember these words in the Galilean hills. The desert on the eastern shore of the lake had proved to be too near the centre of his popularity. This time he decided to withdraw far beyond the range of the importunate crowds. He travelled northwestwards for about thirty miles into the mountains of Upper Galilee, reaching at last the borders of Tyre and Sidon. There is no reason to believe that Jesus went over those borders into the land of the Gentiles. The evidence suggests that he did not. He entered into a house on the Galilean side of the boundary, and, in Mark's words, would have no man know it. But he could not be hid. A Syro-Phoenician woman was in deepest distress because her daughter had an unclean spirit. She had heard of the fame of Jesus and, crossing the border, sought for him. After anxious inquiry, she found him. How her heart would leap with joy when she saw him! She threw herself at his feet. Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David! My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. She had found him. Her faith would suffice. She lay there at his feet. Her ears waited for the word which would turn the anguish in her heart into joy. There was no response from the quiet figure. No gracious hand lifted her up. No power flowed forth to meet her cry of faith. No word of comfort broke the stillness. In silence he watched her piteous appeal for help. Quietly he left her with her burden and her grief. Still she clung to her belief in him. She followed crying, imploring, beseeching, until her persistence disclosed a hardness in the hearts of disciples which must yet be softened. Send her away, they besought the Lord, for she crieth after us. Where lies the secret of his silence? Why are the fountains of his mercy sealed? Surely the answer lies in the manner of the woman's approach. Jesus was too great to be patronised. 
In her need she had addressed him as Thou Son of David. What could she know of the meaning of this title she had so glibly used? David had not been king of Syria. His greater son had not crossed the borders of Galilee. Like the woman who had touched the hem of his garment, she too has something to learn. Spiritual discernment of her relationship with Israel must take the blindness from her faith. Jesus makes answer to the disciples, not to her. I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Quickly she discerns her mistake. Worshipping him she implores once more, appealing to him no longer as the son of David, who belonged only to Israel, but as the Lord, the universal helper of all mankind. She accepts his rebuke, but she will not leave him. Her need is desperate. Lord, help me. At last he speaks. His words press the teaching home. She will never forget now that salvation is of the Jews. It is a hard saying, but he has spoken, and in his words there is a gleam of hope. It is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. With that sudden inspiration which so often comes in the presence of Christ, she accepts his answer. There is yet hope. There are crumbs. True, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Surely it was given her in that moment what to speak. How could she have known that the children had so recently refused the bread? How had she learned that they had driven him at that moment to the very border of the table? And was not he the master of the dogs also? Was not she here in faith at his feet? How beautifully Jesus responded to this woman who had wrestled with the Son and had prevailed. Her sorrow had endured for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. Enlightened faith had at last called forth the responsive power of Jesus, and away over the border in a heathen land a little girl stirred upon her bed, and then lay back with a smile of peace.